You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. And today, I'm pleased to introduce you to Moshe Mikanovsky. Moshe is a software engineer and product management leader who turns his creativity towards building software products, hosting a podcast, creating visual art, and of course, writing, which is why he's here today. Moshe mm-hmm. participates in the National Novel Writing Month, NaNoWriMo, if I said that correctly, and in 2013, began writing his first novel, The Resurrector, which can now be purchased wherever books are sold online. In addition to his love for the written word, Moshe loves mentoring and coaching product managers and startup founders, helping them to realize their entrepreneurial dreams. Here today to talk about that and so much more is Moshe Mikanovsky. Uh, welcome to Uncorking Your Story, Moshe. Hey, Mike. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. And I'm, I'm of course, going to ask you the same question I ask everybody when they're sitting in the, in the seat where you're sitting in, which is, uh, Moshe, where does your story begin? My story began, uh, I guess, when I was born. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I was I was uh, born and raised in Israel, um, and um, um, actually, a lot of the things that I put into the Resurrector are coming from my background, from my childhood. Um, some um, small anecdotes and, and stories, or even you know things that happened to me <laughs> and stuff like that. But it's more about, it's not so much the stories themselves, it's more the environment, the, the city, the place where it is. So I was born in uh, Bnei Brak, which is uh, uh, the, the, probably the most religious um, city, Jewish religious city in, in um, Israel. And um, I was, um, my, my father was also born over there. His parents uh, came before the Holocaust to Israel separately, and then they got married over there. Uh, and then uh, they, they, they were one of the, founders of the city and he was born there and then we lived there and I was born there um it's um um it's a very interesting place uh, because uh, whatever you imagine you know as um as a city is is um when you go to different cities around the world so there are some similarities things that are familiar to you and there are some you know differences and over there it's always to me whenever I go back although it's very familiar to me because I was born over there it still looks very, very different from other cities. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I certainly detect a Canadian or French accent in there. So uh, did you, how long were you in, in Israel for? Yeah. So um, it's actually my Israeli accent. I don't, oh, it is. I don't speak any French, uh, but <laughs> I do <laughs> I don't live know, in, for some reason I'm hearing like a Canadian thing happening in my, ear. yeah, I do live in Toronto. Um, so when um I joined the army in Israel, you know, over there it's mandatory. And then in the army, I was a software developer. Um, I did uh, six years in the army uh, and I got married to my wife also in Israel in the last year of my service. And then my first job that I found after the army, um, after about 10 months, they relocated me to North America to 
to work for them over there. So I was in Michigan uh, in uh, Detroit area for six years. And then in 2002, I moved to Canada. So I've been in Canada since then. So it's now uh, 20 years, almost 20 years. 20 years. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so uh, well, tell me, um, you know, kind of making that shift, you know, kind of making that move from Israel to, to North America. Um, what was that like for you? How, how did that impact your life? Yeah, it's um, it's a very interesting um, move. I mean, every time that you move countries, even from the U.S. to Canada, as much as uh, American think that Canada is exactly the same as as the U.S., it's not. Uh, there is there is that change and being an immigrant and being new in the environment. Uh, moving from Israel to the U.S. was very exciting for us. Um, we it was really the first time I visited America. I never been to the to the U.S. I've been to Europe to some places, but not to the U.S. So even Detroit was exciting for us. Um, and <laughs> and um, um, we uh, we we lear I learned a lot over there. Uh, we, you know, the the culture is quite different um, with um, the way uh, people interact with each other. Um, just as an example. Uh, some American people, when when we went, you know, on on business trips, and they came with me to Israel, they thought everyone in Israel shouts at each other, but <laughs> they don't. They just they just that's how they talk. They talk with a very high volume <laughs> sometimes. Well, where, that, that's true in Italian households as well. I can attest to that. <laughs> okay, so so yes, so there are maybe some more. It's the Mediterranean thing in in us, I guess. Um, but um, that was like, uh, uh, you know, small things like that, that were um, um, glorifying the difference between the cultures, the difference between, you know, the, the places. Uh, but I also have opportunity to learn a lot um, to enhance my career. Um, I did my master's uh, in, in the US. So, you know, also studying in the, in the States was another experience, um, made lots of friends. So. Uh, overall, it was quite good. Um, two of my daughters were born in the States and the, and the third one was born in Canada. So we're a multinational uh, um, family. Yeah, there you go. Well, tell me, um, when did you start writing? Uh, when, did, when did writing come into your life? Yeah, so I, it depends what type of writing. So, you know, in high school or school, I, I did love writing like, you know, I wrote small fiction stories and stuff like that, but it never went anywhere. And then when I went to become, you know, in the software development, it's a completely different type of writing. But because I was relocated to the States, I had, I was working with the field with the clients a lot. And in that position, even though I was still developing software, I still had to be a much more verbose with the way I was saying things and talk with the clients and write different things. So a lot of it was writing, you know, technical specifications or writing user guides and stuff like that which is quite different from writing fiction. Sure. Um, when uh, going back to, to, to the book, to The Resurrector, so I, I was always quite creative in, in things that I was doing. So in the past, it was more about visual arts, uh, painting and drawing and um, uh, printing and um, stained glass. So I, I always love to, to do stuff and create things. Um, and especially when I felt that I'm not creative enough at work, I had to find those channels to do that. Um, eventually, I, I did try to sell my art, and that was really, really hard. Um, you make a lot of art, and it's quite expensive to do sometimes. And then you try to sell it, and you, you sell like one painting out of like 50 that you make. And 
it was very discouraging for me. So it's sometimes so so then I for some reason I got into writing and uh, it was like this is so much cheaper. All you need is like a piece of paper and a pen or your computer that you already have and you can do it anywhere you want. You don't have to carry all of your material everywhere and and all of that stuff. And um, in uh, you mentioned Anorimo. So in 2013, my daughter, she uh, she was a grade nine and she decided to, she heard about Nanorimo, and she was also very much into writing. She's uh, very creatively talented as well, writing specifically. So she decided uh, to write a story. She wanted to do it. And she got a few of her friends and all of them decided to do it. And I'm like, yeah, if you guys are doing it, I will do it with you. Why not? So that was really where I started writing. And in those 30 days of November back then in 2013, I wrote the first draft of The Resurrector. And it was quite an um, you know, amazing experience because I was able to come up with a story in 30 days and 50,000 words. So it, it was quite, quite a feat. Um, it was terribly written. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and after that, I was like, there is something there. I need to explore it. I need to see what can I do with that? Is there a good story there? And if there is, how do I write it in the right way? So that's where it all started. Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious, you know, you, you kind of are, you're a software engineer by trade. Um, you mentioned kind of, you know, kind of doing that in, in the army. Did you ever feel like a fish out of water kind of embracing that as, as your career, but having this like super creative side? And that doesn't mean that, you know, software engineers aren't creative. Um, they're certainly creative, but in different ways. Um, I'm just curious as if, if you ever felt like um, a fish out of water in your career as a software engineer. Uh, not really. Um, the only thing is that as a child, I always had dreams that I will be an architect, actually, either an architect or interior designer, uh, because I, I knew that I want to do something creative. And, you know, people told me that if you're an artist, you're going to be starved to death and stuff like that. So I'm like, OK, an architect is is sounds like a good profession. <laughs> and um but then I kind of got into this program in the army to be a software developer. And I felt that I'm actually quite creative in that. It's not the same type of creativity because it's not, you know, drawing or stuff like that. But you do, you know, from the language that you write, you know, the software language that you write code, you come up with, you know, an application that someone can use and you solve problem to users. So that, that's another thing that I like to do. I like solving problems to people and, and create value to people and create, um, you know, delight people with stuff that I do. So if it is uh, the software that I build, I really, it's always very de delightful to me when someone uses it and say, yes, this is solving my problem and I like using it. The same thing when I painted and tried to sell my art, I wanted people to like my art and say, yeah, I, I love this piece of art and I, it will hang on my wall. And the same thing, you know, with the book, I want people to enjoy reading it and, and come out of the, the experience with some value. How did you, uh, what, 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 let's start here and in terms of talking about the book, um, what's the idea behind the book? I mean, obviously you don't want to give away too, too, too much of the plot, mm -hmm. um, but broad strokes, I'm curious about what, um, what the book is about. Yeah, so the nugget of the idea that I had back in uh, November 1st, 2013 was, what happens if 
you know, it, it's coming back from the my heritage, you know, growing up Jewish and, and religious. And uh, we one of the prayers that we're saying is that God will resurrect the dead in the future. And my thought was, what if the resurrection of the dead is not going to be in the future, but now, and it's not going to be everyone that God's want to resurrect, but just one person. So there is this person that has this power to help a family resurrect a loved one that passed away. So that was the nugget of a what if that I came into the, the story. And then I, I started building it up from my experience, you know, back in Israel, etc. So uh, when someone uh, passed away, uh, we, uh, you know, in, in Jewish tradition, there is the Shiva, the seven days of mourning, where the family, the close family is sitting, you know, and mourn, and then other people are coming to console them. And, and that's the setup that, that I started with. And then a, a stranger, so there is someone that died, and there is that family, and a stranger comes in, and he, he gives this power to someone in the family to see again their loved ones. Now, in the beginning, it was more of a parallel world situation where they were able to kind of go into this parallel world and interact with the, um, the, the uh, person that passed away. Um, when I edited it later on, it changed a bit. It morphed into something a bit different, um, mainly because uh, Parallel World has, like in, in books and fictions, has like rules that you have to build and, and how does one get into this? And if he's in the Parallel World, where does he, or maybe he's not in the real world? So it becomes more like uh, um, um, a dreamscape kind of uh, thing. I also didn't want it to be a, like a zombie story. It's not that so it's not like this dead person start you know walking around and everyone see see them it's really only between one person in the family so in in the case of the, of the book in the, the resurrector it's the father so the son passed away and then the father um is starting seeing visions of of his son and then i i put it i put two parallels so the book has these two um, um, two parallel things going on. One of them is this dreamscape. What happens with the son, the father and the son when they see, see him again? And the second one is what happens in the Shiva house in the real world with the remaining of the family and who is this resurrector and people are starting coming in and looking for this resurrector who is this stranger and they want to um, um, you know, reveal his identity. And yeah. uh, which at the end, I, I, that's where I will stop. I will not say what's the end is, of course, but there is some conclusion for that, for, for both of these um, uh, narratives. So you don't leave anybody hanging, which is always a good thing. Yes. Um, you know, you, you, it touches on so many, it's something that is universal to all of us, which is death, right? I mean, Absolutely. We, we can all, it, it's, it's one of, you know, obviously something that we can all relate to, which is, um, which is something that's very powerful. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm curious, kind of having started it, written the first draft, you know, the first 50,000 words anyway, in 2013, how did the story change over the years? And what was your approach to um, kind of, kind of kind of narrowing it down or, or editing it um, what, um, what what did you find helpful during that process yeah so part of it I mentioned already like you know that dreamscape um, change uh, but um, I I took a lot of um, I I knew that I don't know how to properly write a story so I wanted to make sure that I learned how to do it 
I love learning. So that was fun for me as well. So I took classes at the University of Toronto in their um, continuing education uh, for creative writing. And, and part of those classes, I revisited you know, some parts of the book and revised them, etc. Et I also spoke with some other authors um, and some group of authors to give me feedback. And I engaged with some beta readers. So throughout this process, I, I, it was important for me to get feedback and, and you know, get better in, in this, you know, uh, practice. The um, uh, things that change in the book, you know, other than what I mentioned before, are related to either exploring more of some of the uh, characters that I put in there. Um, you know, do they have a space in the book? They don't have a space in the book. Um, changing um, some of the order of the book. So for example, today I have a prologue that, that describe how uh, the son passed away and how they found him. Uh, where or originally in the book, it was in the middle of the book somewhere. And, and I changed it because of some feedback I got, you know, from people about it. Um, I also added like an epilogue because, and, and other things that close the story more tightly because there were some loose ends. Um, it's very funny because when I read American literature, usually, um, and I'm a very big uh, fan of, of um, Stephen King. Um, some people don't call it literature. Uh, I do. I love it. But um, in, in general, in American literature, many times the, the, all the open end, uh, ends are closed at the end and it's nicely wrap up. When you read the uh, Israeli literature, many times they just drop it in the middle of the sentence. <laughs> and it's very annoying. It could be very annoying. Um, maybe not to that extreme, but there is no conclusion at the end to a lot of um, subplots and stuff like that. So I guess, um, you know, when I wrote the book, I, I, I was um, doing both. Um, I closed some of the, uh, some of the stories. I left some of the stories open-ended. So that was also one of the things I got from my better readers and I was able to uh, make it uh, much more tightly written. Um, yeah, I mean, just to... like you have uh, beta users for, for software and apps, you know, beta readers, you know, can Absolutely. be critically yeah. important to the writing process. Absolutely. And, and that's, um, that's a great, um, um, to me, it was, it made a lot of sense. I knew, you know, there are better readers out there, uh, but um, I, I'm also, uh, in the last 10 years, uh, a bit more, I'm, I'm doing product management. And in product management, you, you look into the product in a, um, you try to look into the product in a very objective way that, because you, you're trying to solve a real problem and you're trying to create value to your users and to the company where they build the product. Um, and you cannot fall in love with the solution just because you came up with the solution. And that was one of the things that, um, you know, better reader, better people will, will tell you, you know, we cannot use this thing, it's useless for us or whatever it is. And with books or anything creative, uh, in the past, I was always like, this is me, this is who I am, this is how I want to paint, this is how I want to write, you know, take it or leave it. But then I saw that no one took it. <laughs> I wasn't able to sell much. Um, I didn't want to sell out, you know, with my art. So that was something I put aside. Um, but with the book, I think part of making the process so long, you know, it took me eight years and I put it aside for, for some time, 
it was it enabled me also to look at it more recently as a product and get uh, more uh, objective about it and try to really find you know who is the persona of people that are going to enjoy it how do yeah. i get to them how do they get me feedback about it um and now in the marketing process when i market it how do i find these people where are they exactly so it's all it's all of those questions i i always ask about the products that i'm developing in my day job so i do that also with the book so when when did the book launch when did it come out it came out in january okay this past uh, january so yeah. i mean it's i mean almost 10 years i mean 9 years maybe 8 and change um, which is a long time to be to be writing something. Yes. Um, did you have the support of your family while you're doing this? Because you know, writing is such a solitary process, and you're investing a lot of time. I mean, you're not just writing; you're going back to school, you're talking to other authors. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a lot of time that you know I can imagine someone saying, "Hey, you know, you're spending a lot of time doing this thing. Um, what about us? Uh, <laughs> how would you characterize the support you had from your family during this time?" I had great support from a family. Uh, they there was never a discouragement or anything like that. My wife, uh, she always uh, knew and she loves the way that I'm I'm applying my creativity. Uh, so she always supported me in that, you know, being creative and do the stuff that I love doing. So before you know writing and and learning how to write, I mentioned the different art forms that I I did in the past and I would always take another course in this another course in that so so she was always very supportive about that and with my kids um that was actually one of my goals in getting the book out and publishing it is to show my kids that it's possible that even if it takes a long time you know if you have something that is worthwhile working on then it's possible to do and I always try to find time that will not you know um, interrupt with my family time. So, for example, a lot of the marketing work that I'm doing right now and reach out to people and stuff like that, even some of the editing of the book, I'm just, um, you know, we were eating dinner as a family together every night. And then, you know, we're talking about stuff and whatever, we're cleaning the kitchen. And then we go and watch TV and I take the computer and I sit with them in front of the TV and I'm doing my work and they don't feel that I'm, I'm not with them. So, so it's, um, you know, we, we work it out. It's, it's actually, I never had any, any problem with that. I'm, I'm blessed. No, that that's good to hear. And it is so having the support of a family and a spouse or partner is so important to the writing process because, you know, you are, you're very vulnerable as you're going through the process. I mean, you are putting, you know, whenever you're making art, you're vulnerable, you're exposing like a piece of your soul. Um, so, so you need a cheerleader. I mean, you need a cheerleader in your corner to help you, um, yeah. kind of push, push on through, especially when you're, cause there are times during the writing process where, and I'm sure it happened over the course of eight plus years, you're like, what am I doing? Is this any good? Should I just give up? I mean, those thoughts kind of creep in, Absolutely. but to have a, to have a cheerleader is, is so important. Yeah. The, the hardest part for my wife was to read the book because she, she loves reading in Hebrew. She doesn't like reading in English. So um, after, you know, my daughter wrote the, uh, read the book and some beta readers read the book, etc. I'm like, you got to read the book. <laughs> so she, she put the time and she also gave me feedback. And that was really, uh, you know, I admire her to do it, even, even though she doesn't like, to, uh, you know, reading in English, then she still did it for me. So that was awesome.
Well, I hope you put her in your uh, acknowledgments. Of course. Um, <laughs> uh, tell me about the publishing process for it. So kind of kind of going from, you know, manuscript to, to novel yeah. um, to getting it out in the world. What uh, what was the publishing process like for you? Yeah. So I tried to reach out to um, agents and I wrote, you know, many query letters and I sent them to agents, never heard back. So I didn't get that kind of discouraged me. And then I found um, this hybrid um, publisher, uh, New Degree Press. Um, I found them through LinkedIn uh, from another connection that she was writing a book with them. And she said they were looking for, they actually have another program. So it's two programs running uh, affiliated with uh, George, um, Georgetown University in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, one of them is a Creator uh, Institute and the other one is New Degree Press. And the Creator Institute is where they write a book. And uh, so it's like a six months I think uh, program, maybe a bit more. And then um, authors that write the book and they pass through to the next uh, stage, they go and they publish it with New Degree Press. So I already had the manuscript when I contact them. So um, they, they asked me to send the manuscript and very quickly they read it and then green lit it to continue into the New Degree Press. As a hybrid um, publisher, um, I it's um, it's a bit like um, I'm, I'm like self-publishing. So at the end of the day, I keep all the rights for the book. I put it on, you know, the different platforms out there to publish it, but I get the full support from them, uh, not just with the support of editors and and um, designers, you know, for, for the uh, cover, but also uh, weekly workshops on different top topics, how to market, how to edit, how to many, many different things. Even until now that we we ended the program already, we still have uh, some workshops that we can come in and and join in for different topics, um, and it really helped me to learn um, about the publishing process in general. And then, uh, in order to do that, it's not just uh, to write a manuscript and have it greenlit, but also we do a pre-sale, so we have to raise funds to almost show that there is interest in the book and we can sell it. Um, so that was a pre-sale that I did um, last summer. Um, it's, a, it's a 30 days pre-sale on Indiegogo. Uh, that was probably the hardest part for me uh, because um, I love to create stuff. Um, I don't mind the editing part at all. I actually enjoy editing as well. Uh, but to sell, that was like completely different level. And um, I, I was able to do that. I was successful in that. And then we, I had an editor, uh, marketing and revision editor that worked with me for two months to revise the, 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 um, uh, the book based on the comments from the acquiring editor. And then um, we also sent it to better readers that were part of those people that uh, participated in the pre-sale. So pr part of the pre-sale is to give them this inside look into how I do it and early um, insights. So I got a lot of good, great um, uh, beta readers uh, feedback then as well. And then um, I, I went through um, uh, the cover design process, which we also did uh, with uh, several options. And I put it out to my uh, network uh, uh, to vote for and give me feedback on. So we got improved. And the final design that you see is actually a combination of two designs that were created and a lot of uh, feedback that we got. Um, so, so the product became much better because of that, because we, we, we built it with that, with that community. And then I had like um, 
copy editors and I had um, setting for print editor. Uh, so we, we had all of those steps going on um, and then launching. So it was quite, um, you know, um, intense, intense six months to, to go through that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned the, um, you know, mentioned the cover. Uh, what, what is the symbolism on the cover? Yeah, so the fish, you mentioned fish out of water before, and there is a bit of that in the book as well. Um, I, I think that, um, that that's part of it. Um, the, so the fish is, is uh, it's a carp specifically. Uh, it's mentioned in the book in several, several places. To me, it's like one of those um, childhood, childhood memories where I would go to my grandma and uh, she would make uh, gefilte fish. Is that, you know, fish uh, from Eastern Europe that, that we, they make for uh, the Sabbath. But she will not buy, my mom would buy the, the fish already dead and cut and just ready to, to make. She would buy like a live fish and she would fill her bathtub with water and it will swim in her bathtub for a few days until she's ready to make it. So it was very, very fresh when she made it. But that was the memory, you know, that I had. And, and lots of my friends had the same memories from their grandmothers. Um, so that got into the book a bit. And um, the, the way that we came up with the, um, you know, I, I didn't want it to be too dark. But there is, you know, some darkness, of course, you know, with the, with the topic and, and the, the themes. Um, the, the, the resurrector is really a person, but here this is kind of symbolized like coming from dead, to, from the dead to the living. Um, and then there is this, this type of a, a dreamscape in there as well. The water is also the, the sun that died. This is in the prologue, so it's not it's not a big reveal if I if I talk about it. But he he basically drowned in in the ocean. So there is also the water as a source of life, and the water is a source of death, and this you know uh, conflict between the two. Wow, heavy uh, heavy stuff there. Yeah. Um. And and I love just kind of kind of hearing that publishing process. It really does mimic the product development process. You know, from um, you know, for marketing or even product development, because, you know, you're trying to identify a need and a niche, you know, you, you draft, um, you draft a manuscript in a certain genre. Um, then you, you know, you, you do your proof of concept, you get your beta readers, you get your editors there. Mm -hmm. um, and then you're taking all that feedback and kind of making it as good as it can be. And I also love what you said, you can't fall in love with the solution just because you created it. Yes. That's, um, that's, that's true as, as an author, it's true in, in marketing as well. Yeah. Um, well, I've got some specific questions for you. I call them my hot seat questions. They're not really hot seat questions. Um, <laughs> they're meant to be fun, but also to get to know you a little bit more. Sure. Um, first one, uh, I'm curious, um, and, and you can may have a different take on it, uh, since given where you grew up, but, uh, what were some of your favorite TV shows when, when you were a child? Ooh, um, depends what age, but I loved, one of them was uh, Wonder Woman, the original one. And Lin Man Linda Carter. Yes, with Linda Carter. And um, The Men from the Atlantis was another one uh, with uh, the guy that played in um, in Dallas, Bobby Ewing. What was his What's his name? Oh, Bobby Ewing. I know uh, Larry Patrick. Hackman. Patrick. Patrick. Uh, yeah. So he was this guy that had these uh, fish hands, like he had, uh, and he was able to swim, and he was able to. Uh, it was very cool. Um, <laughs> um, Steve Austin. You know, uh, I love that. Oh, the six million dollar man. Yeah, exactly. That, that was one of my favorite shows. 
yeah, I guess that type of shows. <laughs> yeah, well, Wonder Woman came up uh, the other day. Somebody mentioned Wonder Woman. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, that's a great one. I remember she had the uh, little bracelets and she would, yes. she would deflect bullets, you know. Yes. Let's exactly. see how those work, those would work in the real world. Yeah. Um, probably not so good. Probably be a lot of people missing hands. Um, <laughs> they tried to do that. Um, yeah. How about uh, how about this? Um, you know, if we if we were like looking at your playlists, you know, whether Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your music, uh, who are some of your art artists, favorite artists that we'd find on those? Um, quite a bit of Israeli artists. So I listen to Israeli songs. There is. Um, one of them is Dan Reichel. Is um, very um, is an amazingly talented guy, and he creates this world music. So he always do collaborations with um, other um, singers from um, you know like all over the world. So you have songs. He, he, he sings this himself as well, but many of the songs are sang by other people. So like many different languages, lots of Hebrew, of course. Um, I also love Italian music. Um, Italy is one of those places that I would love to live one day. So I just put uh, the, you know, current pop or current uh, top um, 40, whatever list on Spotify and just listen to that. Very cool. Um, uh, getting into writing when you're sitting down in front of your computer or with a blank piece of paper, um, how do you feel when you're looking at that blank piece of paper, blank computer screen, and your, your goal is to write something creative, some, some kind of fiction? Yeah, I try not to start with a blank um, page. And maybe this is one of those things that um, also comes from my background in software. Uh, many times in software, you know, you have, you learn, the first thing you learn in every platform is this hello world, how to create an uh, app that will say hello world. And then you have other examples and many times you just take those examples and you change them a bit to whatever you need. Um, in, in my case, I'm not taking you know, other examples and change them, but what I try to do is to have a list of ideas. And then when I have a list of a, an, an idea, and the ideas never come when I sit in front of the blank page. So it always come in these odd places or times, uh, in the shower, when I'm in the car, you know, before I fall asleep. So I have a file on, I, I have notes on my phone that I always like, if I have an idea for, for a story or for a nugget of a story or something, I will just put it there. And this way, if I feel like, okay, I want to sit down and write, I'm, I'm usually will take an idea from over there and, and develop that rather than start with an empty page. Right. Yeah. Some people can get certainly intimidated by that empty page and get anxious about it, but. Um... Exactly. Yeah, I love love another parallel there between uh, between your professional uh, between your professional lives. It's always uh, good to learn. It's always good to learn, you know, from other things that you do. If you do them well, or if you know how to do them, then why not learn from that on on other things? How about um, lessons about writing or publishing that you feel like you learned or had to learn the hard way? Um, I think the uh, you know the selling to people or the especially on the pre-sale. Um, I think that one of the hardest thing, it's not just that it was hard for me to do, but what I've learned is if I look, I, I'm, I'm also, because of my other job, because of my day job, I always look at data and see what does the data tells me and what can I learn from that? 
and I would all the people I I got uh, like 150 people that supported me and bought the book, and I would uh, mark exactly in the spreadsheet where is it that I know them from. So do I know them from a work relationship, or do I know them? Are they you know friends? Or are they family? Um, maybe I don't know them at all. It's and stuff like that. Uh, or maybe I know them from social media. And then I did an analysis of, you know, um, how did I get to these people and how, what, how was I able to be successful at the end of the day to do that? So if I do it in the future, or if someone asked me how to do that, what should I tell them? And what I learned over there is that at least from my, it's only example of one person. I would love to see it from other people as well to see if there is a pattern there. I feel there is but it's only my gut feeling. And that's where, you know, you build an hypothesis and you have to prove it. So I can't prove it by one person, but at least what I feel and my hypothesis is that it's really about the people that you know, and it's not so much about just outreach to the world that you don't know. Um, and especially in the early stages when you don't yet have the book out and you don't have yet reviews of the book and you don't have yet the book that you can give it to people to read and stuff like that. So um, more than 60% of the people that bought the book were people I knew from working with them. And luckily for me, I worked like in many places in the last 30 years and I have a long career. So I knew a lot of people and I was able to reach out to many, many of them, but it took a lot of work for me to, you know, find their contact information because sometimes I lost it or whatever, reach out to them, uh, schmooze with those that wanted to schmooze with and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, probably 95% was people that I knew. So the rest of the, you know, after the work, the people from work were, you know, friends, family, and uh, people that I contact, that I reached out on LinkedIn or other social media beforehand. And I had like uh, networking with them. So I talked with them at least once before, unrelated to the book. So that was a hard lesson for me on who is really... You know, if you want to really make it out there that way, um, you, you really need to create a big network of people that know you. And it's not just people that, you know, you send a message to everyone and you wait to see what will happen. There is much more than that. Well, this this kind of leads into uh, my next question, which is um, what's some of uh, what, what what's the best piece of advice you could give to an aspiring author? Um, yeah, I, this one, actually, I would say more uh, believe in yourself. So I didn't believe in myself for many years, and that's why it took so long. So the eight years, eight, nine years were not just me revising the book on a daily basis. Many times it was just sitting in the virtual drawer of my computer and waiting there because I didn't believe that I can do it. I didn't believe it's a good story. I believe to people that say that they didn't like this or didn't like that. Where, where all they basically gave me was feedback and I took it as rejection. So, um, you know, believing in yourself is, is probably the most important thing. Uh, but of course, um, you know, you need to also improve yourself all the time, you know, learn new things and, and improve and improve and improve. So you can believe in yourself, but then if you're, the book that you write is, is not that good, then you know, maybe people will not really like it as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, last up is uh, if you could write your younger self some words of advice, um, what would you tell your younger self? Oh, do it much earlier. Don't, don't <laughs> wait. 
uh yeah that's probably will be it um you know just just go and do it uh it, it takes me time sometimes to you know mature into my ideas and get things out um so now that i i saw that i'm i i, I can do that i'm working on my second book and i really hope the second book will not i'm not hoping i know it's not going to take that long <laughs> did you did you start that during november as well or Yeah, I, I wrote it in, uh, in the next year, in November, uh, NaNoWriMo 2014. But uh, because I was working on that first book on The Resurrector, I never touched that manuscript since then. So you could say it's also like eight years but in the making, but I just started revising it recently after I was done with The Resurrector. All right, yeah. well... The author is Moshe Mikhanovsky. The book is The Resurrector. It can be purchased wherever books are sold online uh, and uh, perhaps uh, hopefully soon in some, uh, in some independent bookstores. Uh, Moshe, where can people uh, go to learn more about you or follow you on social media? Yeah, so I have my website, mikhanovsky.com. And over there, there is um, two sections. One is for author and one is for product. So if you want to learn about me as a product manager or as an author, you can try each one of them. Um, I'm uh, quite active on LinkedIn, uh, so you can search for me and, and connect with me over there. I will connect with anyone, and I like talking with people. And I'm also on um, Instagram. It's uh, moshe.mikanovsky.author, uh, so you can search for me over there. And um, I have in my bio over there my link tree, so different links uh, as well there. And I'm also on Facebook. Um, just look for uh, my name, Moshe Mikanovsky. Uh, you should be able to find me there too. Very good, Moshe. Thanks so much for uh, stopping by to talk to me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. That was a pleasure, Mike. I really enjoyed that.